Well, so good to be here. So glad Kelly was able to make it. So glad to worship together. Uh, Would you turn to the book of Luke, which is toward the second half of the Bible in the New Testament? Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be here in a moment. As we begin a new sermon series for a new season, the season of Lent, hopefully you were able to tune in to a video or discuss and meet with the neighborhood group on Ash Wednesday. Maybe you were driving around town and you saw some people and thought, oh, they got something on their forehead. Well, Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent, and it's the reminder that confronts us with our mortality that we are going to, spoiler alert, die. Unless Jesus returns, you are going to, ready, die. So from Genesis, we're reminded ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And so Lent confronts us with the reality of our mortality. But it does more than that. It also invites us to dependency. We recognize that we can't do it all on our own. And so Lent is the season that is for the church to tune up and to retool And to get your life back on track and in order. And that's through the tools, as Reiner mentioned, through giving, praying, and fasting. And he may not be a big fan of fasting, but I don't know too many people that are a huge fan of any of them. But they're tried and true tools that if we were to give ourselves to, we find that it creates space in our life and hearts for God to act and move and form us. So I hope that your Lenten journey that began this past Wednesday has been off to a good start. And this evening, we are beginning a sermon series to coincide with it called The Unvarnished Jesus. Get used to me turning around a lot because our TV isn't turning on this evening there. So The Unvarnished Jesus, unvarnished is a fancy way of talking about peeling off the layers of lacquer or stain or varnish that has accumulated over our concept of who Jesus is and our idea of the way we ought to live with him. I hope that you've been reading the book, and if not, it's not too late. We'll have more info at the end of our service about that. But the whole idea is to see Jesus afresh. Years and years ago, Before Amy and I, right around the time we were getting married, we went to New York together. And we went to Grand Central Station. She was accompanying my family on a trip, and I asked her about this, and she has no recollection of it. But to me, I thought it was fascinating. So we're in the central terminal of Grand Central Station, and we saw something like this, if you're able to see this photo on the screen. It's a little bit blurry, but you can tell the color of the ceiling a little bit, can't you? It's kind of a greenish, bluish hue. And so we're walking around, and as we did so often in New York, we're saying, oh yeah, I feel like this movie was shot here, or I've seen this in Friends or something like this. And so we're talking about Grand Central Station, and Amy has no recollection of this, but somebody was with us saying, you know the crazy thing about that ceiling? I was like, no do tell. And they said, listen, it didn't always look like this. In fact, it was so dirty from water and soot and mainly tobacco smoke that there was decades when this bluish green ceiling was smudged brown. And they said that only after they restored it, 
Could we return it to its former glory? Now, I had a recollection of this. I asked Amy about it, and she says, I don't know what you're talking about or who you're talking about. I said, no, I promise you, I remember hearing this. Well, I looked it up, and it gets even crazier. In 1998, yes, they restored it, but they had to restore it so gingerly they used soapy water. And get this, ready? Q-tips. That's a lot of real estate. But there is something about a passion for reclaiming what was beautiful and good and better than a smudged, tobacco-stained brown that they set to a two-year restoration to recover an image. And what's remarkable that you can't see here is that there's golden inlays of constellations. It's a literal scene from heaven, if you will. And what happened in 1998, when the restoration was completed, people started looking up again, and they saw with fresh vision what they had seen a hundred times before. The difference is now, the layers have been removed. The grime has been removed. The distortion has been removed. I think it's ironic that all of a sudden people in the same place, in the same space that they had been hundreds of times before were restored and in awe again of a heavenly vision. That's what we're after. I could have read Brian Zahn's wonderful intro to his book where he gets at this concept of the unvarnished Jesus by recounting a story of a visit to the Taj Mahal. It had not taken on tobacco-stained layers. It had taken on philosophical, spiritual, historical, layers of a kind that distorts our understanding of what the thing really is. And he says, if we're not careful, we can build up all kinds of layers upon the person and way of Jesus that prevent us from following him on his own terms. So before we look at Luke chapter 9, and before we begin this sermon series, can we admit, just maybe, that we got some layers that we put up on Jesus? That's a dangerous and risky thing. I'm a pastor. I'm paid to not have layers of my own opinions upon him. And yet, I think we need to take a step back and not only in Lent realign our life and our practice, but maybe realign our vision to be surprised about who Jesus is again, to be surprised at his words and his way. Some layers we've inherited. You just kind of grew up having a concept of God that whether you know it or not is driving your behavior. I inherited, I have no idea how, my parents never said this, I was in different kinds of churches, I don't recall them actively saying this, but I inherited an image of God with a frown face and a check mark sheet of paper. And that frown got worse if I was on the naughty list, and the only way to Move that frown upside down was to make sure I didn't do the naughty things and did more nice things. I inherited by some form or fashion a bean counting, naughty or nice, Santa Claus 
frowning God. Some layers we've just inherited, which is why they need examining. Which is why when I sit down with people who have left the faith or never embraced the faith, and they say, I don't believe in God, I say, which one? And then they tell me about the frowny, bean-counting, angry, finger-pointing God, and I say, I don't believe in that God either. Some we've inherited. Some we've discovered. Wait a minute. Did you hear what Reiner said? Did you hear about our brokenness and our sin? Did you hear about Psalm 32? Dude, did you read Psalm 51 this Wednesday? Did you read Ephesians 2? That we were a mess, we were a nightmare, but God, because he loved us and he's rich in mercy, even when we were dead and even when we were sinners, he loved us? Sometimes we discover that the God we thought we had is no God at all, and the God we do have is better than we could have ever imagined. That kind of thing, that'll, that'll change your life. Some we discover and we need to cling to. Some have just creeped in from our culture. My first internship with students was with middle schoolers, and I may have told you this before because I think about it a lot, and it is wild. I had a student approach me, my first internship, and he said, hey, is it true that if you make it to heaven, before you can like go into heaven, Jesus has to whip you for every cuss word you said? Now, I wouldn't trust my 19-year-old intern self for much, but I'm pretty sure I could say no, emphatically. I didn't know much, but I knew that that didn't track. And then I turned around and I said, so you can go cuss, oh yeah. And I just, I didn't say an F-bomb or anything like that. But I was tempted to because I was like, no, let me disavow you of this concept that somehow has crept in through your friends at school. Does Jesus whip us for every cuss word? Some of y'all, y'all need to fast and repent because y'all got a lot of lashes coming if y'all ain't careful. This is why some of these layers need removing, but not all these layers need removing. Here's the thing that this person who said this to me is now grown and married. And I know that he's taken Bible classes. And so I am confident that if I went and found him and asked him, hey, man, you remember what you said? Do you think you still think that? He would say, no way. Because he's removed some layers, he's examined some layers, and he's trying to get at an unvarnished Jesus. Some layers need critiquing, but not all layers. Because at some point, even when he was silly and didn't understand that Jesus wouldn't whip him, he still had enough sense to say, you know, Jesus is probably Lord. So let's go ahead and wipe off that varnish of the whip Jesus for the cussing, but let's, let's, let's polish and elevate this idea that you have a sense that Jesus is Lord, and if you're going to get to heaven, he's going to have a lot to do with it. So, so I'm not recommending that we just deconstruct and, and, and wipe down and, and varnish everything where you're left with nothing. What I am suggesting is that some of these layers need examining. Because Jesus is too compelling, too beautiful, too powerful that we ought to keep seeking, keep finding, keep discovering and find that there's more of him to discover that will change you and transform you were we to give ourselves to him. Now, 
The way we're going to do this each week, Lord willing, is by asking and answering these two questions. The first is, what is the varnish that needs removing from our image of Jesus in his way? What's the image that Jesus is going to confront us with? You thought this, but actually, Jesus is saying this. Which leads us to our second big question each week. In what way is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? That's where we're headed this evening. Lord willing, that's where we're heading each week. The unvarnished Jesus, the unblack brown tobacco soot Jesus. Let's look in Luke chapter 9 because his disciples and the crowds and the rulers had put a lot of layers of meaning upon Jesus, and he's going to cut through all of this mess and confront us with a clearer image of who he is and what he's up to. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 is where we'll start. Once when Jesus was praying in private, go ahead and mark that. Luke loves to tell us this rhythm of Jesus' work and rest. Jesus is almost always confronting his disciples with something big after he's been praying. Can I say that again? Before Jesus goes and drops a bomb or asks them to do something or does a big decision or does something uh, serious with them, he's spending time in prayer. I think it's something worth noting in Luke chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 9, that Jesus doesn't just show up and fumble into his work. He is coming from a posture and place of preparation and prayer. I think that's fascinating. That's not in my outline. Let's keep going. Then, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. You ready for what comes next? No, you're not. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. You know, all the religious experts of his tradition. And he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self or soul? Then this strange, surprising comment. So whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There's something about hitching your wagon to Jesus even when it's hard that is what's going to get you through when the kingdom comes in fullness. Because when Jesus and the kingdom comes in fullness, everybody has to see and admit then. But those 
who are able to say yes to him when it's hard are the ones that are going to make it through to life. Finally, verse 27, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. What's going on here? Or better, our first question. What is a varnish that needs removing in order for us to see him clearly? What do we need to wipe away from who he is and his way? I think what we see here firstly is this. There is no red carpet route to glory on our journey with Jesus. The path to life goes through death. And some of you might say, yeah, I got that. I hear that. I hear Jesus saying this. But I think our life experience shows us differently. We can say yes and amen and hear stories. Jesus never promised us an easy road. But the moment we hit a bump in the road, we have a choice. Do we let our circumstance dictate our reality of who God is? Or do we let God dictate the reality of our circumstance? Let me see if I can try to say that again. (laughs) I probably can't. We face a choice. When we hit the bump in the road, are we going to let circumstances dictate our reality of who God is? Or are we going to let God dictate the circumstances of our reality? We can say he didn't promise us an easy road. It's a whole other thing to have the awareness on the hard road that God is still with me in the varied terrain of life. The disciples left everything to follow Jesus. They knew that they would have to find different financial support. They knew that they would have to say goodbye to their family for a long period of time. They knew that it was going to be difficult in the way that somebody might find it difficult when they enlisted in the Marines. And then they get to boot camp. And theory becomes reality. And so when Jesus says, hey, I know that you're fresh off of this powerful mission in Luke chapter 9, where you were doing the things that I was doing. You were healing, you were preaching, things were rocking and rolling, and you came back, you're like, dude, this is amazing. And then we were out in the desert, and there was 5,000 people, and you said, where's lunch? And then Jesus goes, ta-da. And then you had all these bread and fish and loaves, and even though you kind of still didn't figure it all out, things were looking great. And then Jesus says, all right, guys, let's go to Jerusalem. By the way, What was the rumblings in the crowd when you were out and about preaching and healing and things were looking great? What was the rumblings in the crowd at lunch? Who do you say I am? There's something about the fact that things were going super well and they're headed to Jerusalem. They probably thought, oh great, it's going to be up and to the right a rocket ship toward greatness. Jesus is now going to Jerusalem and finally this kingdom of God stuff is going to happen. That healing stuff was cool. That feeding stuff was cool. But finally, man, he's going to go take it to Rome and he's going to take the reins of our religion away from these legalistic, angry, honorary Pharisees. Finally, my dude, let's do this thing. 
So they're thinking, let's head to Jerusalem. And James and John saddle up to him and say, hey, man, uh, when, when, you, when you get to Jerusalem and you become king, can I be your secretary of state and can he be your secretary of defense? And Jesus says, you, you don't know what you're asking. There's no secretary of state or secretary of defense. There's going to be a thief and a revolutionary dying and bleeding out next to a crucified God. They expected a red carpet route to glory. They thought that things were going so well that everything will continue to go up and to the right. We think, we want, we hope. Everything will continue to go up and to the right. Our career will keep going. We won't lose our job. We'll still get paid, and everything will be fine. We won't get that diagnosis, and if we do, it's going to work out, and then we're going to be able to pay for our medical bills, and then we're going to just keep going. We're going to get a promotion. We're going to keep doing this, and then the second that something comes, life happens, circumstances beyond our control, it dictates takes our reality and we say, oh, God, you must not be good anymore because you don't give me what I want. And don't blame your friends and your family and yourself because why wouldn't you desire something to go well? But Jesus has to continually remind us that the path to life is through death and that there's something about suffering that just simply can't be avoided in a broken and hostile world. And to hitch your wagon to Jesus is to at least go through rejection and brokenness and pain and difficulty with him. And that's what makes all the difference. I did a funeral in this room yesterday. And I talked about how it's one thing to die with, without Jesus. And it's a whole other thing to die with him. To be connected to the source of life and to say that we know that death is not the end. It's a whole other thing to know that when we're walking through the green pastures, we're with Jesus. It's a whole other thing to know that he's with us in the valley of the shadow. So Jesus is removing this varnish that things always go well. That if there's not going to be a happy ending for him, there may not be for you either if you're going to follow the way I'm going. And again, you say, yeah, I know this. I know this. But I think the reason why Jesus gives us the invitation to take up our cross and deny ourselves daily is because we have to keep remembering this. Because everything in us wants everything to be up and to the right, up and to the right, up and to the right. And Jesus says, the path to greatness is the many little deaths. Because a no to yourself and your agenda opens up more space for a yes to God. And when you do that, as painful as it is, you find more life, more love, more forgiveness, more goodness, and you find who you truly are in him. It's one thing to go through circumstances and suffering without him or ignoring him. It's another thing to take a deep breath and say, this stinks. I hate this. God, help me. But I know you're with me. Don't let me or any other Christian in this church come alongside you in the hospital and say, God has a plan and everything's great. God does have a plan and it may not be great. So the question is not why God. The question is where God? Where are you? Oh, you're here. While we looked for him among the chief priests, he's bleeding as a criminal on the cross. While we looked for him along the rich, He's naked and crying in a manger in Bethlehem. 
He is surprising us. He's removing the varnish of our American expectation that we should always get increase. And Jesus says, the way of the kingdom is decrease. And a no to ourself and our agenda, there's something about this that makes room for life on the other side. There's something about Jesus that they can't quite put their finger on. They thought that the Messiah had a red carpet root. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed king. And it gets translated into Greek as what? Christ. Messiah is Christ. Jesus Christ to a Hebrew person is Jesus Messiah. Okay? Messiah is Christ. And Christ is translated as Lord. Which is interesting because in the Hebrew concept, the Messiah is God-like God's agent, but it didn't mean that Peter said, you are God. It means that there's something about you that is bathed and surrounded and saturated in God. There's something about what you're doing that smells and looks and sounds like the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. I think you're God's Messiah. I think you're the agent through which God's shalom and reign and goodness is coming on earth as it is in heaven. They all said he must be some Elijah figure before the kingdom. They said he must be another prophet who can do some really fancy religious magic tricks. They think he might be John the Baptist. The they is earlier in chapter 9. We looked at it a few weeks ago, if you'll recall. Herod was perplexed and thought, all these things look like God's kingdom. So maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's a prophet. It's remarkable that the king and the crowds could not bring themselves to admit, maybe he's the one. Because he didn't fit their box. Because he was poor. Because he didn't coerce the crowds. Because when he preached in Luke chapter 4, as our kids read this week, and they said, this guy, he's got something. And he says, oh yeah, let me tell you a story. Ten minutes later, they're ready to throw him off the cliff at the beginning of the story in Luke chapter 4. He was routinely confounding their boxes. He was routinely challenging their expectations. And if you're married or have a family and you've ever been in a conflict, you know that conflict happens when expectations are unmet. Somebody like, like me needs to take note of this. Like in a, not in a spiritual sense, like maybe she was mad because I didn't meet her expectations for what I was supposed to do today when I forgot to go to the store. Conflict happens when expectations are unmet. So no wonder the crowds can't make sense of him because he is routinely unmeeting their expectations. Now, finally, the question that's looming over all of Luke's gospel to this point, who is Jesus really? We've got all these theories, but you're not ready to make that connection. That's when Jesus asks this powerful question of us. Okay, that's what they think, but I want to know, who do you say I am? There's something remarkable about the Gospels, 
And that is that they give us clues, they give us hints, we see glimpses of the things that Jesus says and does, but they don't say explicitly like we would expect in a textbook, this is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. There's the Father, Jesus is the Son, and then there's also the Holy Spirit, Jesus is God. They don't say this. They give us clues and glimpses, and then they turn the tables, and you see questions peppered throughout like this. And it's like Luke wants you to stop reading and think and wrestle and remove some varnish yourself. I don't want to talk for much longer, but I would love it if you could snap a picture of this or write it down. And even if you need to stop listening, I'd rather you wrestle with this question. And maybe it's like, I know that he's Lord. I know that he's my Savior. But who is Jesus to you right now, really? This is how we get out the varnishing and the unvarnishing. You know, I said a prayer and I confessed and I felt like more spiritual a year ago. But today, he's kind of like my old high school buddy that I have fondness for and I love. But man, we like, gosh, I haven't seen him in two years. (laughs) You know what I mean? Maybe if we're honest, we have some kind of answer like that. Like for me, if I were to answer this question to be just totally vulnerable with you, I've been thinking like, you know, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus might ask, or who am I for you? And And I just have all this list of things I want him to do and download in my life. I want him to revive me, awake me, renew me, help me, guide me, this. And so maybe if I'm like really vulnerable, the way I've been thinking and praying, you know, who do you say I am, Adam? Like, he's my vending machine. I don't know. Who do you say I am? And maybe your answer will be different a year from now or at Easter. But Jesus invites us to wrestle with a Messiah that's going to be rejected, crucified, killed. A Messiah that didn't look anything like their expectation. Love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. And he's inviting them to follow, even if it costs them their life. Hold on to this question as we round home with our message and move finally to our second question as we close. The second question you may remember of the unvarnished Jesus is this. In what way is Jesus inviting us to see him more clearly this week? He says this famous phrase, anybody who wants to save their life will lose it. What good is it if you gained everything but you lost and missed the most important thing? I think that Jesus is inviting us to hold loosely the things of this world and to cling tightly to Jesus. Do you understand that for the disciples, things were looking good? I bet if they had a cell phone and they texted their wives or moms or friends back home and they said, hey, how's the Jesus journey going? They're like, dude, it's wild, man. It's crazy. There's like hundreds of people and things are rocking and rolling and we get free meals all the time and the wine that he makes is really good and that's pretty cool. And then they're probably saying things are good. But understand that within that phone call, they might say, how's Aunt Susie doing? I know she was super mad I 
took off with Jesus. How's Rabbi John? Because in their way, to follow Jesus is to be met with instant rejection and denial of the well-established norms of their religion and culture. If you start following Jesus the way that Jesus asks to be followed, in the way that we give, and in the way that we hold loosely our stuff so that our stuff doesn't hold us, you're going to raise eyebrows with your family and friends in this culture. When you start to come alongside and love the poor indiscriminately of their skin color and their socioeconomic status, religious people are going to think you're being too holy and you're missing the point of saving souls. You're going to run afoul of people that love you because they can't understand your love for a crucified, rejected Savior. So they might crucify and reject you. But that's for Ukraine. And that's for Russia. And that's for the Middle East. And I would say maybe the point is not to upset people here and to go out looking for rejection. But maybe it's to hold so tightly to Jesus that no matter the circumstances or the expectations or the opinions of others and the stuff that we hold so dearly, maybe those things become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so the rejection becomes a byproduct because no one can understand you because maybe we're not as a culture fully understanding Jesus and his call to say no to yourself and yes to him to take up a cross and die to our connection to these things so that we can find the better thing. What good is it to get all this but miss the ultimate? What good is it when you go and it gets hard and you bail? No, the path of life is through death, which is why I would end with this phrase, when things are hard, lean hard into love. In our church, we say we pray believing God can, we ask that he will, and we trust that he what? Loves us no matter what. There is going to come rejection, there's going to come hardship, there's going to come difficulty, and you're not going to get the answers you want. You're not going to have the things figured out theologically that you want. So let me counsel you with this. Lean hard into God's love. When we sat in this room for this funeral, I couldn't find the words to make it right and to recast this person's life as rosy and wonderful and say with certainty that all is great and grand. But I just tried to practice what I'm preaching and lean hard into the tender compassion and mercy of God. We sang a verse that says, you're rich in love and you're slow to anger. John, when asked, who is God? What is God? He says, God is wrath, right? No, no, no. God is what? Love. So whatever other aspect of his character, wrath, anger, mercy, compassion, grace, is all rooted and baked in a central core of love with a capital L. So even in God's wrath, which is a metaphor for his righteous 
anger and indignation about the ways people make hell on earth is rooted in a place that he loves the earth and the people within it. An old philosopher named Simone Weil said that God is love like an emerald is green. It just is. Through and through, every shade of God's character is rooted in love. So when things are hard and things are bad, you can trust and build your whole life on God and his love for you, even when your circumstances feel unloving. This is how we navigate it. And I wish I had more answers for you, but I don't. Because Jesus says the road that we're walking is a road toward death. You want to come? And the reason we say yes is because there's something about him that we trust that not even death is the end. There's something about him that if we were to give ourselves to him and follow him, he knows the way to life, even though it feels like death. We trust that he's leading toward resurrection, even though the cross is the last stop. This is our invitation. Will we follow Jesus through the varied terrain of life, even if it means rejection and difficulty, and even if there's so many no's and things to give up, would we find more of his life and love and goodness? And even in death, may we find ourselves opening our eyes to a God who loves us, who has called us, and who will keep us for eternity. Amen. And amen. At the beginning of this Lenten season, we are met with the challenge of handing over every bit of our lives that do not come from God. May we have the courage to rid ourselves of what clutters our lives and all that distracts us from the reality of God's unconditional love for us in Christ Jesus. And even if we don't give up anything for Lent, may we at least give up the ways that disconnect us from God our source of life, and strength and weakness. May we walk with Jesus toward the hill just outside of Jerusalem. May we, like him, take up our cross and follow, living responsibly and faithfully to the way, the truth, and the life. Go in peace.